Early Risers is supported by Health Partners and Park Nicollet. From rashes, fevers, shots, and all other things that make you worry a lot, Health Partners has pediatric care for your kids. Visit healthpartners.com slash schedule. From Little Moments Count and Minnesota Public Radio, this is Early Risers, waking up to racial equity in early childhood. I'm your host, Diane Halsey with Think Small in Minneapolis, Minnesota. This show is about how to talk with very young children about race and racism. Sometimes it's not even about talking. Sometimes it's about sending unconscious messages to children about race. So, you know, it sometimes happened that our loving and joyful young children say something terrible. They can hurt other children's feelings. And sometimes these hurtful comments are racist. How do we help young children work through these experiences? How do we help the child who has been hurt and the child who did the hurting? Well, my guest today is Christina Gonzalez. She is a licensed independent clinical social worker, and she is the director of student support services at Richfield Public Schools in suburban Minneapolis. And most importantly, she is a very good friend of mine. So hello, Christina. Hello, my friend. Let's start a little bit on a personal note. So your family is Lebanese, and as a young child, you moved here to Minnesota with your family from New York City. Tell me about that experience. Well, you know, it's such a vivid memory. And my parents, nearly 40 years later, have their strong Nuric accents. And um, I remember my father saying, no one talks to you. No one knocks on your door, offers you a cup of coffee. I don't understand. <laughs> what, what's happening here? No one talks. So it was a very significant shift. So um, my father actually was sent to Lebanon for high school and then pulled out quite abruptly because it was the beginning of the war. So he um, didn't finish high school. So then went into numerous jobs and then got an opportunity to purchase a franchise, a restaurant here in Minnesota. So what my parents knew was family and community in Brooklyn, New York, and then moved to Maple Grove, Minnesota alone for my father's business for some increased financial stability. And we quickly clung to a newly arrived family from Taiwan. So I still call my aunt, uncle, and I consider their children, my siblings, same age as me and one of my brothers. When my parents kind of really settled in was when they finally found a Lebanese church in Northeast Minneapolis. So would you consider yourself bicultural? Yeah, I would. Life at home was vastly different than life outside of home. So how do you think your parents tried to prepare you for the racism you might experience? One of my earliest memories is when we were driving from New York to Minnesota. My father said, no more Arabic. And you need to hide your gold necklaces. And we proudly wore these gold necklaces with the cedars of Lebanon, which is on our country's flag. Mm -hmm. I remember it so vividly, Diane, we're going through toll booths and I was thinking, oh, the thing that fostered so much pride and was such a deep part of who I was internally and externally, I now needed to hide. Mm. And I think they actually had us work more towards whiteness to prepare us and kind of brace us for already feeling different and othered. 
very much like education focused and be obedient and compliant and respectful. So we wouldn't make too many waves. So we wouldn't call too much attention to ourselves for being different. Do you remember any early experiences of racism after you got here? Oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, I got made fun of a lot for having hairy legs and a mustache at a young age, had print calls. Um, someone called and placed a song called Kill an Arab by the cult. Oh my goodness. After September 11th, people in our community had like their tires slashed. We had some gardening things overturned in front of our townhome. So covert, but very hurtful. Especially those early experiences. How did they shape you um, to be the person that you are today? Initially, some shame, like not feeling connected to myself or even in my identity. But I'll tell you what it did the most for me. And you're not going to be surprised by this. I don't know that I've shared this with you, friend, but I've been a helper since I was little. So I think because I felt always different and othered that I could see that feeling in others pretty easily. That doesn't surprise me. Yeah. So I think it just really informed who I spoke with and how I engaged. And I loved children from a very young age. And I think it just an empathy and an understanding of others. So now you are well into adulthood. (laughs) Some days. (laughs) You're married and you have two children. And don't dispute me on this, but you are a leader in Minnesota when it comes to clinical issues on race in early childhood, especially with the work you are doing teaching at the University of Minnesota. But you've also had your own challenges in raising your bilingual and bicultural children. So tell us about a time when your children were young and something happened and you didn't really know how to respond. Yeah. Okay. Lots of times. (laughs) So um, my children are half Mexican, half Arab. So they're Spanish speaking Arabs. Um, My oldest son reads as Mexican. My daughter has is similar to her mama. So a little more fair. We, We speak only Spanish in the home. Well, let me start with this mama and my husband often talked about race. Often. What do you notice in the restaurant? Be proud for being a Mexican. I mean, we just, we had the books, the conversations. Um, We gave of ourselves. We did service. So um, my kid disarmed me when he engaged in the first conversation about race. And I was literally silenced. So probably third grade, picked him up from school. I'm sure we had to rush somewhere. But all I remember is him saying, I don't want to play with the white kids anymore, mom, at school. Mm. And I I literally, I just remember saying, wait, what? Oh, we'll talk about it later. Yeah. What was going through your mind at that moment? I think it was like we have to go to karate. I cannot believe in retrospect that I didn't stop everything and drop my bags, drop to my knees and say, say more, baby. But even me. You know how you described me, my work, like even me, I didn't know what to do. It was hard to process in that moment. So hard because, because he's so little. I think there was this part of me that was like, already, I'm going to just avoid it. No, it's not this early. He's already feeling some sort of way as a brown boy. I mean, he was little, little. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he was seven. He was seven, second grade. Yeah. And he already had some thoughts about that. So what happened at the school to lead him to make that statement? These were his words. 
mama, I don't want to play with the white kids as much anymore because I don't feel as comfortable. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, with, and he named his friends, with these brown and black kids, I can be who I am. Mm, wow. That's profound at seven to know when he was feeling unsafe in his body. And when he said, I can be who I truly am, what, what was he really saying? What was he really talking about? He's saying he could breathe deeply in his skin as a Mexican Arab boy, and he can be loud or not. He can, at that point, break dance or not sing or not just without inhibition. So you are saying that at seven, he is already recognizing where he feels comfortable in his body and with whom. Right. That's very interesting because some studies show that children as young as seven are dealing with traumatic effects of racism. And many professionals, especially professionals in the mental health field, are working to develop therapeutic interventions for racialized trauma in children and adults. So have you, in the work that you're doing, seen racism affect the development of children? Absolutely. This is such a great question and so intriguing. So I work in Richfield Public Schools. I'm the director of student support services, and we are a first ring suburb, as most folks know. We, our students are 42% Latino, Latinx, Spanish speaking, and about 20%, 18% Black. I My first year was called to a school. That's interesting developmentally. I would say I started feeling othered in second grade, and so did my son. And this is a third grade example the teacher had asked for me to come up, come in and do a restorative circle, that there were a number of white female identified students treating two brown boys, two Latino boys poorly, and that it had become racially charged. Oh my. And this was right around the election of former president Trump. So there was a lot of heightened anxiety for our students, especially our Spanish-speaking students who know and love folks whose status is uncertain. So there were both racially-based comments being made to these students and also status-based around um, being undocumented. So I had met with the teacher in the school social worker and actually said, nope, I'm not doing this circle. I'm going to empower you to do it. I would love to empower you to create a space for healing and repair. Mm -hmm. And so we did a circle and we led with how it felt. The social worker went in and the circle became um, two to three times a week, a practice where students could lead with how they were feeling. And it was specific to this conflict. So not only did the students that were receiving the harassment or bullying have an opportunity to speak. So did the students that were enacting it. Mm. And so there was learning about difference and status. There was learning about race and the students that were making the inappropriate statements, not only did repair in the group, they did a follow-up email more than once to their teacher about what they'd learned from the experience and the behaviors completely dissolved because we put it in the room. We leaned into the conversation and I empowered the teacher and the school social worker to name it. Things have been said, and this is not how we talk about other peers. This is not how we talk about folks who are immigrants. It's not appropriate to use race-based language when, even when we're mad. And so repair happened in the class and then reflective learning for the young people outside. 
So um, can you give a little bit more detail about what is the circle that you're talking about? Yeah. So it's a restorative circle. So really circles. Um, and if you look up restorative practices or circles, it comes from um, indigenous tradition around utilizing space for people of all ages. But in schools, there'll be like a morning meeting or circle where we have a set intention for the circle. Maybe the check-in today was hard because I'm proud of myself because and each person has an opportunity to speak. Well, we structured the circle environment to focus on the tension that was happening in the classroom. We know there's been discord and there's been challenges and things that have, have been said that are hurtful. Even if you're just one of the students in the class, we're also impacted. Absolutely. So it gave other students not an only an opportunity to learn, but also say, it makes me sad when this is said, or I feel scared or I don't even know what this word means. So it's this collective learning experience for students because circles are about restoring and repairing. Beautiful. Yeah. So the two young ladies that were actually saying harmful things, what was the reaction of their parents when they found out? Yeah, well, initial protectiveness, and you'll see this a lot because first, a lot of families, when we share with them statements or even behaviors, it's, well, it was probably because of this. So a discounting, but when we, the social worker worked to talk about how this, this kid's not in trouble, not right now. Now, if behaviors don't improve or learning doesn't happen, I'm not saying that there shouldn't be a consequence, but they were young. We got it early and we wanted to give this restorative practice an opportunity and we kept them deeply informed and updated. And the kids did too. And so initial resistance and protectiveness, but then very quickly as learning happened and reflecting happened and repair happened, some nice relief. And they literally, this classroom was a non-issue after that. This classroom took up so much of the principal's time and I got regular updates, but when circles started and repair happened and continued to create that space, there were minimal social issues in the classroom after that. This is Early Risers, waking up to racial equity in early childhood. My guest today is Christina Gonzalez. She is a licensed independent clinical social worker, and she is the director of student support services at Richfield Public Schools. You know, a lot of times we hear that parents, let's say their child is in preschool, you know, or kindergarten, and the teacher may come and tell them, that their child has made a racist remark. And, and like you said, there's a lot of defensiveness, but there's also a lot of, well, we don't talk like that at home. So I don't know where they would have gotten that kind of language. So how can a parent go back and do some repair with that child about what has been said? Move in to be curious. That's what I would say to parents um, when they hear their students have made statements. Um, be curious, practice self-inquiry, Take a deep breath and remember that children live what they learn and they learn what they live. You know, I think a lot about, okay, overtly, you may not say things, but what are you doing covertly? Like, what do you do in certain neighborhoods? How do you talk about individuals? What are you unpacking with what's being seen on TV with your kid? So I think it's, especially for white parents, I would say, get really comfortable with learning about implicit bias and to also learn about white fragility, 
Like research those two things and you'll see where messaging is happening subconsciously and unconsciously. So being curious, you might ask them, where did you hear that? Or why would you say that? Do you know what that means? Do you know what that means? Yeah. Yeah. Like even teaching young people about history, you know, how black bodied folks made it to the United States. And what I like, even with young people, we talk about intent versus impact. Let kids know, I know you wouldn't hurt your friend on purpose. I know that about you. And what you said hurt their feelings. Let's talk about why. And then let's talk about how you can fix it. And it's not, we don't see color. It's not, I'm going to protect you from this. I'm actually going to open your heart and your mind up to the reality that life looks different for your Black friend than it does for you as a white-bodied kid or vice versa. And yet, how do you create connection while maintaining your own self and sense of self? So, Christina, in the example you gave, how did those two young boys respond to the circle, to the repairing that was happening? I'm like, you know, as I'm telling this story, because it was like seven years ago, I'm thinking there was a twist. What was the twist? And I remember the twist. When it was initially brought to me, this will be no surprise to you, my dear friend. It was brought to me that the two brown boys were the aggressors. I'm just remembering this. Mm. They were the aggressors of this tension between the students. But only in the preparation of the circle. We always prep the young people who we're going to discuss in a circle. So we said to the two white girls and the two brown boys, we're going to discuss this in circle. In the process, we started to learn about the comments that were being made that were race-based and status-based. Oh, It's not that these boys are getting mad at these girls and threatening to hit them on the playground or whatever it was. These boys disclose that these girls are making inappropriate comments. And I was like, oh, whole new level of education, planning, and repair. So they were getting defensive because of the racist comments that were being made to them. Yep. And so when the circle happened and everyone had a chance to talk about how those events had affected them, what was their response to that? I mean, I wasn't in it, but what the social worker and the teacher said, I think there were tears. There were tears on the part of the young white girls and there was emotion and sadness on the face of the boys and also a release of being heard and validated because then the healing could start. Yeah. One of the things that I I think about in these instances, when a child of color, let's say they're four, maybe five, um, has experienced especially repeated racial comments and their parents find out, what can their parents do or say to them? First, I want to say to the parent call forth your elders, take a deep breath. Don't suspend what's happened to you, but hold it just gently over here. Because I think the hardest part for parents of color, raising children of color is their own hurt and their deep love for their child to want to protect them from the realities. That's why I didn't say a thing to my kid. Literally, where I was like, he's too young, it's too young, that's not where I'm going to do this right now. And then to listen, to assure the child that their home or wherever that space is, is a safe space. 
I've been working in my own therapy to allow my young man of color, my son, to let off steam with me in the house because I know it's the only place he can. Okay, let them spout off for a minute. They're not going to cross a line, but I want, they need a place to, to decompress. And then find some allies who are allies in the system in which this is happening. Um, and parents of color who are raising children of color, you have a right to use your voice in educational settings, social service settings, and medical settings to say, this isn't working for my child we need something better or we need something different. And surrounding yourself with like-minded parents, other folks of color that can help support, validate, and hold you up when you are hurting for your baby. Oh, that's so good. So we are now just a few days after the verdict of the Derek Chauvin trial. And so many parents continue to be living in an environment where we are talking about the murder of George Floyd and now the murder by police of Dante Wright. So as you're trying to explain this situation to a child, you know, what should you say? What, what, what can you say to like a five-year-old or a six-year-old um, to give them context around um, what is happening you know, in our world right now, while also trying to maintain a semblance of safety. Well, and I think these conversations look different based on race, right? The both the racial identity of the person engaging in the conversation and of this of the young person. I'm going to tell a really quick story. After George Floyd was murdered, a couple of days we lived right in the middle between the third precinct and where he was murdered. So we went and stayed with my chosen brother, my foster brother, who's Chinese. And um, my niece is Chinese and also white. And she was four and a half at the time. And um, she asked why I was there. And I said, because a police officer killed a man and he was a black man. And her dad, who's Chinese, said, I don't want her to talk about it. And then the mom said, yes, she can. So I was like, are, are we sure I can keep doing this? She was like, yeah, I guess. So, which he fully supported. It was again, let's protect her. I said, she needs to know this. She looks, you know, like she could be my kid. And her first question was, will that police officer try to come kill me, auntie? And I said, well, that police officer can't, um, but some people do things that aren't safe and they're supposed to keep us safe. And so, yep, police officers have killed people, especially brown and black people. And it's really confusing and it can make us feel really mixed up. And she's like, really mixed up, auntie. And then we talked about feeling scared and how sometimes that scared is helpful and sometimes it makes us feel stuck. And so educating, so you can see where I went with my little niece who's, who reads as brown, right? Like, I wanted her to learn skills to discern when a grown up is safe and isn't safe. And that's where we moved. Like, how does your belly tell you when you're safe and not safe? And then how do you use that information? Who can you tell when you don't feel safe? And again, for families of color, I know you, you've been practicing as much longer than me. Well, this is when we move into conversations about how we comply and how we decrease risk for our young people of color and then for white students, it's how do we be allies? How do we bring voice? I think about see something, say something. 
you know, we, we talk a lot about that with our white students here. Excellent. So right now, uh, many parents might be thinking about those times when their children said something and they just rendered them speechless um, and they didn't quite know how to respond to that. So how can parents go back um, and do repair with their child after hearing their young child make a racist comment and their initial response to that wasn't quite what they wanted? Oh, I love this question. First of all, we don't ever, we don't want, oh, my husband would be like, well, then why don't you stop doing that? But we never want to make our kids feel like they have to admit what they did wrong, especially when they're little. Don't. So I would like for folks to think about starting there and then start with sentences like what I wish I would have done different. So you recently were talking about a black bodied person and you used a word that wasn't appropriate. You know, I didn't say much. And I was thinking a lot about that. And what I wish I would have said is that using that word is not okay. And I want to talk about why it's not okay, but I think that you probably knew it wasn't okay too. Because something inside of you might have told you that or the way another kid responded or maybe an adult. And if you didn't know, I'm going to make sure you know now. And while I know you wouldn't hurt your friend's feelings on purpose, I want to talk about what that might have been like for your friend. Yeah, my, um, I don't know if we have time, but my, um, I met some of our dearest friends who have a child who was born with Down syndrome and their older son became fast friends with my son. And again, right around third or fourth grade, they were all in summer programming together and they were all standing around these boys, not um, my friend who was born with Down syndrome, but other boys. And one of the boys made fun of the young man with Down syndrome. And my son laughed. And his friend, who's the older sibling of this young man born with Down syndrome, punched him in the gut. So um, parent called and said, hey, could our kids hang out today? And can we meet at the park? And so off the kids went to play. And she said to me, I need to tell you something. My son punched your kid and I'm sorry. And I said, well, why? And then she told me and I said, well, good. And so I said to the boy, thank you for punching my son. And his mom said, it's not okay to punch. And then we all just got together and said, Isandro, why'd you laugh? And he said, I was uncomfortable. I didn't know what to say. Okay. And then the boy said, and I punched you because I could punch you because you're one of my best friends. And so I think about that opportunity for learning to give my kid language around like, what can you do different next time? And I tell you, my kid is a fierce advocate. Beautiful. This has been such a rich conversation, Christina. What are some resources that you might recommend to a parent to have on hand, um, you know, when they get in a pinch and not don't really know quite what to say? This is good. Like, okay, so really learning about racialized trauma, my grandmother's hands, regardless of your identity. And if you're a person of color, make sure you have a thought partner. Um, White Fragility by Robin D'Angelo. Um, learning for justice is what used to be called teaching tolerance. Blah, they changed the name about time. So learning for justice has a lot of resources for teachers, but there's a lot also that parents can use about creating talking points and conversations. Um, National Center for Trauma Support Network, NCTSN, has a lot of resources for parents and practitioners. Also, Embrace Race is a website. 
And then there's some books out, Anti-Racist Baby. That's a great book by the gentleman that wrote How to Be Anti-Racist, Ibrahim Zendi. Excellent. And I just want to say thank you for coming on to Early Risers and gracing us with your wisdom today. Thank you, my friend. The only last thing I want to share is um, from Maya Angelou, abbreviated, when we know better, we do better. So be gentle, parents and guardians, be curious. And you got this. Beautiful. You got this. Thank you. Yes, friend. I've been talking today with Christina Gonzalez. She is a licensed clinical social worker and director of student support services at Richfield Public Schools. This is Early Risers from Little Moments Count and Minnesota Public Radio. Thank you to our executive producer, Andrea Bork, producer, Melissa Townsend, technical director, Alex Simpson, and the whole team at Little Moments Count and NPR. And thank you to Kaviesh Kavaraj for our theme song, I Still Remember. To learn more about this conversation and to hear more episodes, go to npr.org backslash early risers. And to get more resources about talking with very young children about race and racism, go to littlemomentscount.org. Since you stuck around to the very end, I've got a little bonus story for you. A couple of weeks ago, I talked with a good friend of mine about her experience talking with young children about race and racism. She shared this story basically about hosting her own healing circle with her son and his friends at a slumber party when he was young. Here's that story from Karen Kelly Erwula. When my oldest son was seven, I think he was, we had a sleepover and he had two very distinct groups of friends. A few of the little boys were white boys that he knew from daycare, where it was a pretty diverse environment. And the others were African-American boys that were from the school that he attended that was pretty much an all-Black school. And I, you know, naively said, okay, you can invite seven kids to your sleepover because you're seven. And these kids came and it was, I, I would say it was uncomfortable at first. And it was more so, to be honest, it was the African-American kids that weren't used to interacting with so many white kids. And they were very hard on my son saying, why do you have all these white boys here? Whereas the white children were at least used to being around my son, being in and out of our house, and they were comfortable in that environment, or seemingly so. I ended up sitting all of the kids down in my living room, (laughs) seven-year-olds, and having a conversation that said things that were developmentally appropriate, like, who here likes pizza? You know, what's your favorite cartoon? And so they could see that they had a lot of things that were shared among them, even though their skin color was different. And I had to tell them in our house, everyone is welcome. We have friends of all colors and we're not mean to each other and we don't call each other names and those kinds of things. But it was such an important learning for them and for me about how we have to be explicit in conversations with children about race because they often mimic what they see other adults do and they don't know what they don't know. That was Karen Kelly Erwula talking about holding her own healing circle with her son and his friends at a slumber party. Thank you for listening.